From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a show where we discuss philosophical concepts of the classical tradition, their application to our daily lives, and current events. I'm Dr. David Schenk, and this week is a continuation of my theme on the skill of thinking clearly from last week. Last week, I discussed especially the extent to which vague terminology, academic jargon is one of the terms that I use for it, but it stretches outside of academia into the media pretty quickly. And public K through 12, it's all over the place. Terms that are evocative, that are emotionally compelling, and at an instinctive level kind of intuitive, but that people never really look at and they never actually define the specific parameters to make sure that they have a concept there. And if they have a concept, what its boundaries are. That's all over academia, K through 12 public education and the media today. Certainly such vague and therefore sloppy speech and writing is a bugbear for anyone who wishes to think clearly and honestly about matters. But it's not the only bugbear that we face. This week, I'm going to look at a closely related bugbear, confusing categories, mistaking one kind of phenomenon for another, mistaking one kind of question or one kind of assertion for an altogether different kind. Simple example. It is almost habitual nowadays in public debates, including in academia, but also outside of it, about law and which laws ought to be passed and ought not to be passed. It is habitual for people to confuse moral permissibility with legal permissibility. Insofar as they think some behavior is morally wrong, they just instinctively suppose there ought to be a law against it. Or insofar as they think something is legally permissible, that means it is therefore morally permissible. Now, if you think about that for just 30 seconds, that's obvious nonsense. There is no law against me lying to my wife about where I was last night. If you think, though, that there is no moral injunction against it, get a lawyer, because you're going to need one pretty quickly. Well, in a similar way, then, we have this dilemma today where people confuse all sorts of really fundamental categories that they're talking about. And the problem is they don't even notice that they have multiple categories on their hands. They run together two phenomena that really are different from each other and treat them as if they were directly relevant to each other or were even the same thing. In a converse way, you sometimes get the problem of what we call in philosophy, a distinction without a difference. They introduce two different terms where there are no two different phenomena and treat them as if they were separate. From what I've seen lately, that's less common, though, than running two different phenomena together and treating them as if they were the same thing. 
another dilemma. And this one is, any philosopher knows this. Any philosophy student knows this one. Outside of philosophy, a lot of people don't. Another test in the business of thinking clearly is always check your own favorite theories against themselves for consistency. That is to say, if I have some moral theory or some metaphysical theory or some epistemological theory about knowledge, always subject my claims to their own criteria for success or failure to see whether or not they stand up. You know, there's this sort of lazy skepticism about knowledge that adolescent students, high school students, easily will get into, and college students oftentimes too, where they claim that nothing can be known for certain. Now look at that proposition. Nothing can be known for certain. Really? And you're certain of this, are you? You have a proof, a knockdown proof for certain that nothing can be known for certain? If so, then at least one thing can be known for certain. And so the doctrine immediately contradicts itself and demonstrates itself not even to be intellectually serious in the first place. That sort of lazy skepticism about knowledge is trivially false. There are other forms of skepticism that are not, where we could claim skepticism about knowledge in this domain or in that domain, right? Not a global skepticism about all knowledge, but just about our ability to know, say, stuff in quantum mechanics with any real confidence or our ability to know stuff regarding theology with any real confidence. Those forms of skepticism are more serious. And if they are going to be refuted, they will need careful refutations. But this sort of, you know, universal skepticism about knowledge, you look at it for 30 seconds and it clearly does not stand up to its own standards. Those two forms of errors in thinking, confusing basic categories and coming up with doctrines or propositions that fail their own criteria and not noticing that they fail their own criteria. Those two errors are all over the place today in academia, in K through 12 public education, and in the media, it's just, I wish they would take a class on this stuff and, and get their heads straight. But I'm cynical enough to suppose that probably they won't. So I'll take a few examples. There is in moral philosophy, a doctrine called psychological egoism. A refutation of it was given quite some time ago by a very famous and excellent philosopher, Joel Feinberg. Everything that I'm going to say in this section, I'm really borrowing from him. He's, you know, he's, I think, got this pretty much right with a few revisions. Psychological egoism is also known more popularly as the doctrine of enlightened self-interest. It is the claim that all motivations that actually drive people to action are self-interested motivations. Self-interest is the only thing that ever really 
gets a person to do something that ever really tips the scales and makes them make some decision. You see that? Some very famous and brilliant people have endorsed the doctrine of enlightened self-interest. Never mind someone like Hobbes or Locke. Abraham Lincoln endorsed this doctrine. Now let's look at that proposition. The only thing that ever actually motivates a person to action is self-interest. What sort of assertion is that? It certainly is not a philosophical one. It's not a conceptual claim. It's not a claim about the very concept of motivation or the very concept of self-interest. No. It's a psychological claim. It's a claim about how human minds operate. That is an empirical claim, not a conceptual claim. So what do I mean by this distinction between conceptual claims versus empirical claims or observational claims? Basic geometry. What is a square? A four-sided regular polygon that is equilateral and equiangular. That gets rid of things like parallelograms and squares and whatnot. A four-sided regular polygon, equiangular and equilateral. That gives you the necessary and sufficient conditions for any polygon to qualify as a square. That's a conceptual claim about what it means for something to be a square, whether there are any or not. Now look at this different question. How many square objects are in the room right now? I will not answer that question by doing more proofs in geometry. I can't. Geometry is not competent to answer that question. Just as Sociology is not competent to answer the question of what is a square. In order for me to find out how many square objects there are in the room, I just have to put away my geometry books and go and look after I have worked out my implicit criteria for what it means to be one in the first place. If I haven't learned any basic geometry yet, and I were to try to find out how many square objects there are in the room, I easily could make a mistake and include some rhomboids, parallelograms, or rectangles. But once I know the implicit criteria for what squareness means, then I am equipped, then I am finally competent to go around in the room looking for objects that satisfy those criteria. When I confuse that sort of conceptual question, what does it mean for something to be a square in the first place? With an empirical question, how many square objects are in the room right now? I get everything wrong. And all my inferences from it are going to be bad ones. Never confuse the conceptual questions with the empirical questions or vice versa. All motives that actually drive people to action are self-interested motives. That's not a conceptual question about what we mean by the word motive or what we mean by the term self-interest. 
That's an empirical claim about how people, in fact, psychologically function. And as soon as we notice that and we turn to the psychology books instead of trying to concoct some bogus philosophical argument for what is not a philosophical claim, but an empirical psychological one, as soon as we turn to those psychology books, the evidence is overwhelming. This doctrine of enlightened self-interest is trivially false. It is not self-interest that drives the father or the mother to give up their life for their child. There is a deeply rooted, biologically driven motive there. It is not, strictly speaking, though, a selfish one. It is a family-driven one. It is one that people like Richard Dawkins and Edward O. Wilson easily can explain in terms of the selfish gene or the attempt to gain genetic advantage or what have you, right? But it is not a self-interested motive at all. I run into some dude on the street that I don't know from Adam. He asks me for directions to some restaurant. And I happen to know where it is. It is not on account of any thinking about karma or thinking about, you know, what goes around comes around or thinking that I can gain something from the guy later. It's not on account of any of that that I give him directions to the restaurant. He just expresses to me his need, asks for my help, and without thinking about it, without doing any cost-benefit calculations, I give him the directions. And I point it out. Not because... I want to have some opinion about my own moral character. I don't have any opinions about myself in that moment. I just see his need, feel the sympathy for the guy, and help him out. And that's all that's really going on in there. It's a petty altruism that I exemplify in that moment. But it is a form of altruism. And we do it with each other all the time because humans are not fundamentally selfish animals. What we are is fundamentally social animals with a lot of selfishness in us. But that social impulse can and does sometimes override self-interest, just as the self-interest impulse can and does sometimes override our social impulse, and when and where each does override the other is an empirical question that psychology has worked out really pretty well. They understand how this works quite nicely, thank you. And it just doesn't even belong in the domain of moral philosophy. It's not a philosophical claim in the first place, this doctrine. The whole edifice of it is predicated on confusing conceptual questions with empirical ones. And as soon as you see that, notice all the cynicism about human nature that you had when you thought selfishness was all that we were ever really made of. Notice all that cynicism and notice how the entire edifice of that cynicism was predicated on confusion predicated not on your thinking, but on your failure to. In the end, I am very cynical about the cynics.
I think they just haven't worked this out honestly and dispassionately enough yet. They have allowed their disappointed moral ambitions to substitute for thinking things through dispassionately and carefully. And yet look at how popular this doctrine is. I mean, yeah, okay. It's more popular among, say, post-adolescents and college students than it is among people who really think things through and have grown up a bit. That's probably true. But come on. How many people do you think there are in the business world, especially on Wall Street, who think this doctrine is true? And they think it's true because of this bogus pseudo-philosophical sort of argument that people try to give for it, where they confuse the conceptual with the empirical. Would the business world today look the way it looks? Would the investment world today look the way it looks? Would international politics today look the way it looks? Would national politics today look the way it looks if none of us suffered that confusion? I don't think so. Here's another one. It commits the error of failing its own criteria. And it does it, I think, pretty obviously. And yet in academia today and in K through 12 education, public education, I mean, it is treated as just dogma, as received truth all throughout the social sciences, all throughout public K through 12 education. And yet it is trivially false. This isn't even an interestingly false proposition. It's one where you think about it for two minutes and you see that it is incapable of satisfying its own standards. It's the doctrine called social constructionism in human nature. The doctrine says that human nature is purely a function of social environment, social stimuli, and social training. That what we are is exclusively made up of what we are responding to and how it shapes us. What's the basis that social constructionists use to support this dogma of theirs? It's something in neuroscience called neuroplasticity, which is true, by the way. Neuroplasticity is one of the more remarkable traits of the human brain. But notice, this is an empirical claim I'm getting into now. This is neuroscience, not philosophy. Hmm? Keep track of that. Well, what neuroplasticity tells us is that the human brain is extraordinarily adaptive to environmental stimuli and it adapts quickly and efficiently. And it's been well-tested and well-supported from all of the available evidence. It is, that's absolutely right. The human brain is, even later in life, remarkably adaptive to stimuli. But now let's look at that proposition. The human brain is remarkably, remarkably adaptive to stimuli. You don't suppose, do you, that the only reason human brains are so plastic 
is because we have collectively decided to make them so? Of course not. That is obviously stupid. That is obvious nonsense. Neuroplasticity is grounded in neurobiology and in nothing else. It is the biology of the brain that gives us all of that adaptivity. So do you see this doctrine of social constructionism fails its own test. If it really is true of everything about human nature, then it has to be true of human neurobiology. But it can't be. The only reason why human brains are as adaptive as they are is because of biological facts, not social ones. And so society does not make the human brain adaptive. Biology does. Anybody who thinks can see that. But it's politically unpopular, and so people instinctively reject it. But now also notice this claim that human nature is purely socially constructed by the people who advocate it. Do they defend it on empirical, biological, and psychological grounds? No. They treat it as if it were a philosophical proposition and oftentimes try to mount philosophical arguments in its defense. And really, from what I've seen them do, especially in the social sciences, they confuse completely philosophical arguments with empirical arguments and just jumble them together and you know, cite a bunch of data and try to say, see, 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 it's all socially constructed when by its own criteria, it literally cannot be all socially constructed. Some of it can be, but only insofar as some of it isn't. Do you see the importance that I'm dry, trying to drive home here about subjecting your own rules, your own doctrines to their own criteria to see whether or not they are capable capable by their own criteria of being true in the first place. Because some of these most popular dogmas of academia and K-12 public education today are by their own standards, just trivially false. Take another one. Now, this is a really popular one. Even back when I was still an atheist, I never understood how people could take this seriously. The only way I see for holding this is from a failure to sit yourself down and really carefully, dispassionately think it through. The doctrine of moral relativism. Even while I was an atheist, I knew this one was a bunch of hoo-ha. Moral relativism gets defended especially in anthropology, sociology, social work, throughout the social sciences, really. I've seen in like in, in education these days, finally two people who don't espouse moral relativism. This one makes the same confusion, but in an opposite direction. They take a bunch of empirical information about people's moral attitudes people's moral temperaments and people's moral beliefs 
which do vary from culture to culture and from environment to environment and even from person to person. And they infer that therefore the moral facts must also vary, which flatly does not, even in a little bit of a way, follow. People disagree about X. Therefore, there is no fact of the matter about X. That's the actual inferential structure of the most popular defense of moral relativism in academia today called cultural relativism. Now, that is just trivially wrong. Again, from the fact that people disagree, it does not follow that there are no facts of the matter. In fact, in order for people to disagree, to genuinely disagree, first, there must be some facts for them to disagree about. If there are no facts of the matter, then they have nothing to dispute. They just have deferring temperaments and nothing more. And so there is no disagreement between them, just different tastes, which is a moral theory that uh, a pretty good philosopher, Alpha J. Ayer, once defended. But the problem is, people don't see it. They advocate this and they don't even see that they have confused an empirical claim about different people's moral attitudes and beliefs with a difference of moral facts themselves in the world. The former provides no evidence of any meaningful sort for or against the latter. Now, these same people who in academia and in public education defend moral relativism, they do it on grounds that they want people to be more open, more tolerant of other cultures. What do you mean you want people to be more open, more tolerant of other cultures? Do you mean that we should, that all of us objectively as a fact of the matter should be more tolerant of other cultures, more patient with people whose temperaments are different from our own? I would agree with that proposition, but notice you just committed yourself to the objective existence of right and wrong because you have committed yourself to the objective fact that being more tolerant, all else held equal, is better. And being more intolerant, all else being held equal, is worse. Now, that's actually a claim that I happen to agree with. But I can do that because I'm not a moral relativist. I'm a moral realist. I am convinced of the objectivity of good and evil independently of anything human. And on account of that, there can be such a thing as better and worse people. There can be such a thing as a virtue of tolerance. Under moral relativism, there cannot. I already addressed, you know, that sort of post-adolescent skepticism about knowledge and how it fails its own criteria. Two more and then I'm done for today. The doctrine of metaphysical materialism. This is a doctrine that I used to endorse back when I was an atheist, especially when I was a moody Nietzschean 
in my youth, which I'll admit it, I was. This doctrine tells us the only stuff that there really is in the universe is physical stuff. All that you really have, all that really exists at the end of the day is physical things, physical stuff of one kind or another doing one thing or another. It is a very popular doctrine in academia. It is a very popular doctrine implicitly held throughout American culture. It is also trivially false. Let's take that doctrine. The only stuff that actually exists is physical stuff. And look at it closely. Do we suppose it to be true? If we do, then we've got this thing called truth. Standing as a relation between our doctrine and the world around us. Do you suppose that the relation called truth is itself a physical quantity? Or a physical relationship where it is, you know, to the left of this, to the right of that, and stretches out for so many feet? Is that how you understand truth to operate? Because in order for materialism to be correct, you've got to have this actual relationship called truth obtaining between the theory and the world around you. I don't care whether you go for this theory of truth or that theory of truth. Let it be a correspondence theory. Let it be a coherence theory. Let it be a pragmatist theory. Doesn't matter. Your standards, your implicit criteria for truth or falsehood are not themselves physical quantities or events. You will never take standards for success or failure and reduce them down to something purely material, purely concrete, purely physical. In order to do that, what you would need to do is come up with some sort of an algorithmic routine, right? That would chunk out your results for truth and falsehood. Gottlob Frege in the early 20th century kind of had a dream of doing something like that. It didn't work. It can't work. And the reason why it can't work is in order for my algorithm to work, I need standards of success or failure that I impose on the algorithm to determine whether or not it's running properly. And those standards cannot themselves just be more algorithms or I'll never have any kind of principle whereby I judge success versus failure. Whatever else truth is, it's not a material quantity or event or relation. But in order for my doctrine that physical stuff is the only stuff there is to run, my theory must be true. In which case I must have truth in the system. In which case I now have at least one thing, the relation called truth that is not physical. In which case my doctrine that all there is is physical stuff has proven itself false. It is incapable of truth. Now let's put a couple of these together. This is my last part for today. Once you notice the physical universe cannot be the only universe we inhabit, cannot be the sum total of what there is, 
your grounds for rejecting things like the objectivity of goodness, the objectivity of beauty, the possibility of gods, those are all gone. You have no principled basis anymore for trying to rule such things out. Doesn't prove they're real. Doesn't prove there is such a thing as objective goodness and evil or beauty and ugliness or God or gods. But the door is now firmly open. And you can never again be that glib kind of atheist who is convinced God doesn't exist because, well, you've never met him. Once that happens, I say, the only intellectually serious atheists left are the nervous ones. Because nearly all intellectual atheists, not quite all, this was never my view, but it is the predominant one. Nearly all intellectual atheists today are atheists because they are metaphysical materialists. They're convinced that the physical stuff is the only stuff banging around. And once you have truth banging around, and along with it, a theory banging around, and you notice that neither of those are actual physical things, the game is up. Do you see how that runs? Doesn't get you to God yet. Certainly doesn't get you to the incarnation and doesn't get you, you know, through the doorway of a church. But it makes such things possible. This has been Philosophia. Thanks for joining. And I hope to see you next time where I'll talk about the nature of the human person and how getting confused on that category really makes us miserable without our ever noticing that it has happened. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www.truenorth.fm. That's www.truenorth.fm. Dot FM.